What my grandfather did that I am so grateful for, his way to bridge our 40-year gap as it relates to training and to teaching, is he had a methodology called hold the light. Now, hold the light was something you might have heard. It's when he takes on a project at the house and he comes to me and says, now, Fonz, I'm going to do the work. I'm the one underneath the sink. I'm going to fix it. I just need you to hold the light. I'm doing all of the heavy lifting. Don't worry about that. I just need you to hold the light. So at a young age, what I would do, and my grandfather has lived in the same house for 50 plus years. He has done everything to a house that one person can do. He's picked up the floor. He's put down a new floor. He's put gravel down. He's put uh, uh, asphalt down. He's redone the asphalt. He has literally knocked out a room. He turned a three-bedroom small house into a two-bedroom smaller house somehow. I don't know how you do that, but he's done it. He always had projects, and his way of enlisting my participation, which was required, by the way, was to say, Fonz, I'm going to do the work, but I need you to hold the light. But at a young age, I realized you can't not hold the light, right? It's such an easy thing to do. Now, we would start these projects. I was very bad at holding the light. Can I tell you that? <laughs> and I was bad on purpose, right? Because your hope is I'll be so bad that he'll release me from this. So you start off, you're here, and then you're here, and two minutes later, right? Because you don't really want to do it. I found out that it wasn't really about me holding the light. The truth is, I wasn't that great at it. <laughs> he could have fixed whatever it was without it. So that really wasn't important. What he was doing was inviting me into a discipleship moment where I got to see a theory producing a practice. See, he understood that one day <laughs> I was going to move to Detroit and live in a house that was built in 1941. <laughs> I didn't know that at the time. He might have. He knew <laughs> in that same Bagley neighborhood, the Diamond Reference, that, that Fonz was going to uh, have a situation where the sink isn't doing what it's supposed to do. <laughs> now, we won't say whose fault it is, although I live with two women. We're not going to say that it was their fault, Nate. We want to stay married. Um, but there's a reason why the sink and the water's not going down like it's supposed to. And when that happens, it's easy for us to theorize how to fix it, right? But my grandfather made sure I wouldn't just have a theory of how to fix it. I would know what it looks like when the theory becomes a practice. So what he did, all of those, and there were so many of them. All of those instances of hold the light fonts, hold the light fonts, and they were always when the sun was shining so bright. There were always when my friends were outside with their bikes. There were always when some young damsel would, would, would allow me to spend some time with. It was always at an inopportune time. Yet, I'm thankful because it's those moments where my grandfather was bridging the 40-year gap and creating a legacy that I would then pass to my very own son. One, where we would not have men that have an idea of what to do, but we would have people, especially in my family, right? It was important, hand, it, hand down from his father to his father to me, right? My grandfather only had one daughter, didn't get the son he wanted, but ha ha, I filled that gap for him because I showed up at his house. <laughs> and he took that opportunity to teach me what it means and how important it is for us to see what it means to see a practice or see a theory producing a practice. He wasn't just enlisting my time because he was bored. <laughs> he was actually 
letting me see a living example. My grandfather was a living epistle, read by me while holding the light. <laughs> I wish I would have saw it for what it was back then. I wish I wouldn't have squirmed and whined about it so much. Which I, I wish I would have paid even more attention. Because I can't go back and get that time. Again, we're 40 years. So these days, he doesn't do much projects. I don't get that moment in the same way. But oh, I cannot wait until young Davis gets old enough to hold the light. <laughs> and we're going to pick up right where we left off 20, 30 years ago. You saying, well, Fonz, this is cool. Your grandfather sounds like a cool guy. <laughs> what in the world does this have to do with Philippians? Well, in the book of Philippians, especially chapter 2, and we realize that the book wasn't written with verses and chapters like we see it now, but uh, in this sort of body uh, of scriptures, what we see here is Paul's making a very strong case to the Philippian church uh, about not doing things out of selfish ambition or vain deceit. And vain deceit, that's like, that's not something that we would ever say, right? You never say, you know what, this week I've been a little deceitful. No one says that, right? We never write that down. We never ask for prayer. Could you pray for my deceit, please? We don't do that. Um, but the idea behind vain deceit is just being empty of glory. In other words, it's glory deprived. It's you aren't getting the glory you feel you do. And, and Paul says, hey, don't do anything out of that, right? But instead, in humility, Learn what it means to prefer others ahead of yourself, right? And then he goes into some examples so that we can see this theory or belief turned into a practice. And he uses the best example first in chapter 2, verse 5 through 9, and it's Jesus. You don't get any better than Jesus, right? He says Jesus did this in the way he came. Uh, he, he thought that his equality with God wasn't something to be grasped or used to his advantage. But he, he emptied himself and he comes down to be born as a human baby and then even dies on a cross the worst way. Right. And then after Jesus, uh, I'm, I'm sure some of the Philippians might have been thinking like some of us. Well, Jesus did do this. Yes, Jesus was others oriented, but he was Jesus. I'm not Jesus. Right? That's Jesus. He's the son of God. I'm not quite the son of God. I, I, I don't know that I can do that the way Jesus does. And then Paul says, okay. So then a, a little later, he actually gives his own example. And he either, literally says this. If, if I'm to be poured out on your sacrifice or the sacrifice of your faith, guess what? I rejoice. I'm glad if I'm the one that gets to show you what this looks like. <laughs> If I got to die for your faith to grow and for God to be glorified, hey, I'll sign up for that, Paul says. Now, some of us may think, you know, I, I, I don't know if, if you've ever done it, but as a communicator, there's a few people you should just read about. One of them is Martin Luther King Jr. If you ever go and you read his writings, you see him communicate, and you think you have a gift of communication, you throw it down immediately. No, mm -mm, I got nothing. No, mm -mm. bad talker right here. <laughs> that man could communicate in such an incredible way. It, it seems otherworldly to some extent. And this was years and years ago without the technology that we have. He couldn't Google stuff, <laughs> right? So you could see my little king communicating. Go, mm -mm, nope, can't, be, can't do it. Not me. No, nope, can't do it. 
And I think some people might have looked at Paul's example of putting the interest of others ahead of yourself. I think they would have looked at Paul's example and said, yeah, well, Paul, you Paul. Yeah, you could do it. Church friend, Paul. Right? It was a joke that said when Paul would roll into a new city, he wanted to know where the synagogue is, where the marketplace is, and where's the jail. Because he's going to hit him in that order pretty much like like he's staying the night in the jail, right? He's going to start off with the, you know, like th- that was the joke. That was the way he moved. So it's easy for Paul to say, yeah, put others ahead of you. He's Paul. So, Tim, so, so I, think, I think Paul knew this. And after giving us the great example of Jesus, after giving us the example of Paul, he helps us out and gives us two more people. And it seems like it's travel plans, but I think it might be more than that. There, there's two more people that he puts forth for us to hold the light. And we get to hold the light and shine it on these two individuals and see how they reinforce his point of an others-oriented life of humble service. So, this means, and again, these examples in Scripture aren't given just so that uh, a certain men in the Bible can gloat or can flex a little bit. It's given so that we have a tangible, up-close example on what it means to take a theory and convert it into a practice. If I was a theologian of some sort, I might say orthodoxy, which is right or correct belief, and then orthopraxy, which is the right living or the right thing that we do. And the idea is that a good orthodoxy produces orthopraxy, right, which is a right way of living. If I was like that, that's Pastor Flynn, that's not me. So let's look at it right now. We're going to look at both of these men and let's see what we can learn. We'll pick up in in Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. Here it comes. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. No one like that that's going to be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the father, he served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I know how it will go with me. And I trust the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray real quick. Father, we would never, ever approach your word without you. We would never seek to understand its truth, knowing that it points us to you. That in your word, Father, we see clearly more than anything, you, how much you love us, how you've made such Uh, preparations for who we are and what we are for 
And God, I pray that you would now reveal the wonders of your word to us. More than my words, would you speak now? We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the passage puts forth two people. One brother named Timothy, one brother named Epaphroditus. What we want to do is hold the light and let's take a, a quick examination on both men. We'll start with Timothy. It says, verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. And then, if Casey were wondering, well, why did he send Timothy? The Bible says this in verse 20, for I have no one like him who will genuinely be, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare or your state. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven work, how as a son with the father, he has served with me in the gospel. Now, if it's okay, I want to read to you a few more passages of scripture, just so you can kind of get some snapshots of the kind of man that Timothy was. Is it okay to read scripture in church? Is that cool? Now, I know, you know, we, we new church, and so new church, you got like a 10 scripture minimum. And if it's more than that, people on their phones and they kind of, you know, so bear with me for a little bit, all right? Acts 16, verse 1 through 3, here it is. It says, Paul came also to Derby and Lystra. This is Timothy's beginning, by the way. A disciple was there named Timothy, a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. All right, all right. First Corinthians chapter 4, 16 and 17. I urge you then, be imitators of me. This is Paul talking. I urge you then to be imitators of me. Uh, that, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Okay, all right, a little bit more. First Thessalonians chapter 3. I told you we had a few. We're going to go quick though. Uh, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. I love that passage. What are we destined for? To not be moved by these afflictions because we're established and exhorted in our faith. I'm sorry, that's a habit. <laughs> we'll keep going. One more uh, which is, again, that we, we, we see all of this in this lens of chapter 1 or chapter 2. These verses about Paul or about Timothy that say this. I highlighted these. Back to 20 and 21. I got no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So here we see a few things about Timothy from these passages. And again, there is more, but for the sake of time and your attention span, I gave you a few. Now, there's a couple things that we see off top, right? Uh, and one of those, even in Timothy's beginning, because the Bible says he was a, a disciple when Paul met him. The Bible says that Timothy was a commendable man. He was spoken well of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And this is something that Pastor Sonny says all the time, and I think it deserves to be repeated. Uh, we don't do good works to be seen, but we should be seen doing good works. We should uh, be seen publicly doing good works, right? That does play a part in our witness if when it comes time to us 
People are looking around like, I don't know. Do you know him? Has he done something? Like, have you ever seen him? I don't, I don't know. There should be a space where we obey uh, Christ publicly, having our manner or our conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ. That was a part of last or a couple weeks ago, right? Like, this is a big verse because it, it states what is an offense to a lot of our witness. So we see uh, that, that Timothy is commendable. He's spoken well of. Even Paul says here, you know Timothy's proven worth. Like, in other words, and that word proven means like test it, try. You know how he get down. Like, you know Timothy is legit about this. He's serious, all right? The next thing we see about Timothy is he's committed. Timothy gets circumcised as an adult. And all the brothers said, amen. Now, this is, now here's the thing. Timothy does not get circumcised because he has to. He does not need to get circumcised to be in the family of faith. He does it, why? Because not doing it would be an offense to the gospel's advancement in the spaces where he is because they know his dad is a Greek. Again, all of this is through the lens of being others-oriented. I wonder if there's value to someone doing something that they don't really have to do. Ouch is right. <laughs> Could not be a better response. <laughs> right? So, so Timothy is committed. Like he means this. He's serious. All right? Timothy is also a capable man. He's competent. According to Thessalonians, he is able to establish and exhort you in your faith. Timothy is not just going to these places and preaching people happy. So many jokes I'm not saying right now. I should, you know, you don't, get, you don't get credit for the crisis you avoid. You know, just, I should, though. <laughs> Keep coming to Like, Timothy goes into a place, and, and he doesn't preach in a way that's going to make you most excited. But he will teach and preach in a way that will make you founded or grounded on a firm foundation in the faith. This man is capable and competent. Like Paul says, no, I send Timothy. And when he goes, oh, people get grounded in their faith. They get the principles, the basic tenets of the faith. That means he's not, like sometimes I think we read this stuff and we see child, right? We see, oh, wait, that's my father in the gospel. And I think we think Timothy is like a little ruddy kid just kind of following behind Paul like Davis does me, right? Right? No, like Timothy is a grown man. Like he is one who is capable in the scriptures, now you say, well, what does that have to do with being others-oriented, Fonz? Well, I don't know if you know it or not, <laughs> but uh, it's hard to help people if you're not capable in the scriptures because it means when there's an issue, you will reinforce whatever negative thing God is trying to break off you. In the okay, I'm sorry. My bad. That was too much, too, too loud, too soon, right? Okay, all right. <laughs> Keep going. Not only uh, is Timothy um, a competent <laughs> and committed, but this might be my favorite one. Timothy has a, a, what I call, because I had to keep the C's going, right? Uh, he has Christ's compassion. Christ's compassion. Now, you might say, well, Fonz, how is it Christ's compassion? Well, when uh, Paul writes up, he said, nobody that I have is quite like Timothy. Nobody will be genuinely concerned for your welfare or your state. We might read that and go, okay, well, Timothy seems like a nice, warm-hearted guy. He cares about the church at Philippi. Ah, yes. Many nights I have thought about the church in Detroit and wondered, God, will it make it, right? So we kind of feel this in a general sense. This is more than that, though. 
If we go to Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 8 through 10, look at this. This is, this is, this is beautiful, I think. Again, I know it's, it's maybe more scriptures than you thought you were getting, but it's all right. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is interesting. I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is not just, ah, I really like you. Ah, that guy's good. There is a Christ-given affection that creates this yearning uh, for this people. And, and let's, let's, let's look at a prayer. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. In other words, his affection isn't, hey, I really hope that they're okay. I hope that they're experiencing good things in their life. I hope uh, that their cup is running over. I'm not just hoping that they're the head and not the tail, above and not beneath, and all of these other phrases and sayings that are so cute. His hope and affection for them is that they make it to the day of Christ pure and blameless. In other words, his affection is that they make it to the end with God, that their eternal joy or their eternal salvation is most paramount. Mm. So a Christ-given affection isn't just, yo, I hope things go good for you this week. It's no, I hope you get exactly what Jesus died to give you. I hope that you experience eternal joy, eternal salvation, eternal peace. That is why my affections for you are deeper than natural. I'm going to say something, and if you feel a way, you can email me at S-O-N-N-Y at Detroit. I'm joking. <laughs> this is the truth. You got to get a little honey with the cash flow, right? Uh, the, the idea is this, and this is, hear me. If you can decide to join a church solely on yourself, you can decide to leave a church solely because you want to. If your affection was merely surface anyway, were you ever really a part? Did you ever get to the point where there's a yearn, a God-given Christ affection for a people? Is that something that we've ever even talked about? Have we ever dug into that, that, I, that I, what makes a body or a church wasn't just, hey, I said the prayer, I came, I gave a little bit. Because let's be honest, all of us have some subscriptions that we want to cancel, but we keep forgetting. <laughs> Thank the Lord for true bill, right? <laughs> and what, what does that tell us? That means that we can give money and not be committed to something. We can give money and not be engaged in whatever it is. I've been trying to cancel Peacock for five months. I don't know what day that thing. <laughs> I do not know what day it hits. I just catch it after the fact. I, I want to, but I can't. I miss it. I know ain't nobody watching Peacock. I know it. <laughs> right? It's possible to give and not be engaged. And in the same sense, I think that this is something that we don't talk about. Hey, not just do you like it here. Not just, hey, how you feel like you're, you're fitting in here. But no, do you have a Christ affection for this place? This, this people? Do you really want to be a part of this? Do you find yourself praying? Like, like, like not, I've experienced this in the last 30 days. I've literally had people reach out and go, hey, Fonz, this is weird. Doesn't make any sense. But I'm praying for you. I don't even know what to pray for exactly, but I'm praying. 
And to most of us, it's like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> but this is a part of Christ's affection. This is a deep, this is what we see in the Bible. We see it's not just, hey, I hope everything's cool with you. Or I know we like the same music, so we cool. No, it's a deep yearning, a Christ-given affection. I hope you live the way he intended you to live and get to the end on the day of Christ, pure and blameless. This is different. But this is what the Bible said. This is, this is Timothy. Timothy was a, he was a good guy from this. That's Timothy. Let's go to Epaphroditus. Wow, that was quick. <laughs> All right. Epaphroditus. We're going we're gonna to move along. Verse 25 says this. I have thought it necessary. This is Paul talking. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And indeed he was ill. He was near to death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. But I'm more eager to send him therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again. And that I may be less anxious, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. What kind of men? Men like him who nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, we won't, we won't take as long as on Brother Epaph as we did with Brother Tim. Now, uh, Epaphroditus shows us some things. Now, there's some, the way Paul speaks about him is, is very unique. Now, Paul, first off, you got to understand, Paul was a heavy guy, right? We can agree on that? I heard, I've heard some people say some disrespectful things about Bible people, and uh, I struggle with that. Somehow, Paul had more respect in that day than in this day. I don't know why that is. Now, people sit back and, Paul wasn't right for this, you know. Really, that's interesting. Who are you? I guess, you know, that's kind of what I'm thinking. Anyway, uh, so Paul writes about Epaphroditus and says this. I thought it necessary to send you my brother, speaking of this relationship, my fellow laborer or worker, speaking of his function, his role that he played in the gospel, and my fellow soldier, speaking of the battle, the immense fight that they're a part of spiritually. Let's be clear. We're not talking physically. I don't think Epaphroditus was a, was a, was a, skimpy person at all <laughs> but but we're talking spiritually he acknowledged that he is a brother in in this relationship that he is functioning he's a co-worker co-laborer i don't have to pick up his end of the, of, of the slack so to speak right he's he's pulling his own and he's fighting with us not losing an inch we talked about this when we see withstand that withstand isn't like you don't know, understand there hold no it's hold the line don't nobody lose an inch this is how he describes Epaphroditus. And then he says, your messenger. He uses the same word that we get uh, for apostle, like this, this lead ship on, on the one who leads out in this special voyage or a special assignment. And he says, the minister to my need. And in case you're curious as to what need Brother Epaph, or Epaph, that's my nickname for him, was, was, was carrying, he was carrying the bag. Somebody say the bag. He had a monetary gift that was going to meet Paul's needs. Now, we should, we, should, we should note this. Philippi to Rome, using the Roman road, is about 800 miles. The trip was believed to take about six weeks. And along that journey, there are uh, a lot of spaces <laughs> where bandits will attack you. 
Even some Roman soldiers will rob you. There's innkeepers and all kind of people along the way looking to take advantage of you, big and small. And Brother Epaphroditus made this journey, made it safely. He got there, safe and sound, delivered the bag, right? He secured it, you might say. And then after being there, Brother Epaph got sick. He got ill. I don't know why Epaph sounds so Baptist-like. I don't, I don't know why that is. <laughs> I feel like my grandfather would be very happy at that. I don't know. Um, so, Brother Epaph gets sick while he's there, and he gets so sick that he, it looks like he might die. Literally risking his life to serve Paul. Risking his life, putting the, the interest of, in this case, Paul ahead of himself. Making this dangerous journey. Getting there, getting sick. Now, it seems like Brother uh, Epaphroditus is feeling better, but now Epaphroditus is longing for home. He's longing for the Philippians. And why is he, he longing? Because he knows that they know that he got sick. And now he just wants to give some peace and some joy and comfort his brothers and sisters. Brother Epaphroditus is still thinking about other people even after going through all of this. 800-mile hike, got sick, almost died, and he comes to, and all he's thinking is, my Philippians, <laughs> my brothers, I want to get to them. I want to tell them that God spared my life, that he had mercy on me. I want to be with them so that we can rejoice. I know that they're upset thinking, what about me? No, I want them to know I'm good. I'm fine. We, we accomplished the mission. I got it to Paul. He's good. I'm coming back home. Like, this is, he's eager to connect with them, eager to be a part. And even Paul says, uh, and clearly he's of use to him. Right? Paul would not talk this glowingly about somebody if he really wanted them to leave anyway. <laughs> so clearly there's benefit or there's value. And yet Paul says, hey, I'm going to send him back for your sake. <laughs> this is something about the Bible that I love. The Bible can be teaching us something. And the example that it used to teach us something is still doing the thing that it's teaching us. So Paul uses the example of Epaphroditus to teach us what it means to put somebody else ahead of ourselves while doing it and sending Epaphroditus and putting the Philippians ahead of Paul's self. Can you see that? We love the Bible. Can you, is that a nerdy thing? I don't know. It might be. It might be. So what he's doing is demonstrating what this looks like. And Epaphroditus is, is, has, has this role in it. Now, in, in my closing time, and I promise we're closing, that's the first. Uh, this is, I get at least two <laughs> in this text. Right. Um, now, in my close, I want, I want to share something uh, for you. Now, there was a guy by the name of Bernard of Clairvaux, who was a 12th century theologian. And he penned what would be called the four degrees of love. Now, this is interesting. The first degree of love that he describes is where we, we have love of self for self's sake. Love of self for self's sake. Now, most of us are familiar with it. It's very common. It's where uh, my sister Beyonce wrote a song years ago, and it was, I got me, myself, and I. All I got in the end is what I found out. I'm not singing the whole thing, but that's the point, right? It's that you are all you got. Ain't nobody else going to love you like you, right? So you love yourself. That, that's the most basic, most fundamental. It's also the most easily overindulged, but whatever. Uh, so the first degree of love is love of self for self's sake. The second is love of God for self's sake. Mm. Now, 
This is where we get to a degree of love where we realize that ultimately God can do for me what I can't even do for myself. Like somehow I can create a mess and God has this very powerful way of working this thing in such a way where even the inconvenience thing comes back to help us in some way, somehow. And in this degree of love, we love God, but we love him for our sake because of what he can do for us. We can break the glass in the case of an emergency and he'll come through. Somebody say, right on time. We wrote a song about this degree, said he's an on-time guy. Amen. That's the second degree. The third degree, love of God for God's sake. Now this is beautiful. This is where uh, I taste and see that God isn't just good when I need him to be good. He's just good. <laughs> like God isn't just peaceful when I'm chaotic. He just is peace. <laughs> like he fully embodies, like in a shirt, like he fully feels out what peace is. <laughs> like he's just good. And then we graduate to this degree of love where we don't love God because of what it can do for us. We love him because he's really the only one worthy of our love. Third degree. Most of you might have said, well, you can't get no better than that, right? Love of God for God's sake, what could be better than that? Well, Bernard wrote that the fourth degree of love was this, and it's very counterintuitive. Love of self for God's sake. Love of self for God's sake. Now, this is crazy. And even he wrote that most people never get there. Most of us will never get to this degree of love. And those of us that do, he wrote, will only be there for periods of time. That will inherently, because of the culture around us, withdraw and shrink back into a lesser love. But the love of self, for God's sake, is where you see yourself, you love yourself only as an extension or in the context of your love for God. <laughs> so your life, to you, only has value to the degree that you're able to glorify the God you love. So love of self for God's sake is actually the, the highest level of love because it's where you are most likely to take your life and lay it down. And you can do it because your ultimate love and goal isn't your life, it's the God that you love. And you can only enjoy your life to the degree that it glorifies the God you love. Now we know why Jesus said, hey, guess what? Uh, anyone trying to save his life, they're going to lose it. Anyone who loses their life for my sake will save it. Well, how is that possible, Jesus? Well, it's simple. If you love your life so much, even if you love God too, if you love your life most, then when something happens that threatens this, you will turn your back on the God you say you love to protect this, to save it. But if you love God and love your life in the context of your love for God, if someone threatens this, you can follow Jesus. And what Jesus said, this is why this is very important. Let's be clear. I remember one time I was, I was alone for a ride. It was a 30-minute long argument about who killed Jesus one time. It was, I won't say who had it. It was a super long day. But there's this idea sometimes that we miss say, where we say, you know, the Romans killed Jesus. Or they killed Jesus. We, we'll use that kind of terminology. And I know what we mean by it because crucifixion is murder and all that. But let's be clear. Jesus did not die because someone killed him. 
to think that way is to mess this up. If you think he's a victim, then you'll follow him and you'll remain a victim all your life. Jesus did not die because someone took his life. What did he do? How do you do that? If you love God so much that you see your life as an extension of that love. So you can do what no one else is doing. You can lay your life down. And this is what Paul is showing us. Not just Jesus, not just Paul, not just Timothy, even Epaphroditus. All of these examples in this one text are to get you encouraged enough to see not just the theory, not just the idea, but to produce the practice of actively laying down your life. And this is the kind of church that we're supposed to have, family. I'm done, I promise. Just, just, that's two. <laughs> I didn't say close, but we got, we got to read the scripture. Y'all see me swipe. Okay. The last couple of verses, and then I promise I'm done. But this is, this is too good to not say. It caps it all off. I should have remembered. <laughs> the Bible says this in John chapter 13 or chapter 15 verse 13 and this is the Holman Christian uh, or standard Bible no one has greater love than this that someone would lay down his life for his friends I, I know this, this might seem maybe overly heavy Right? It might seem like, ah, is, is, is church unity really that big of a deal to God? I don't, I don't know how y'all read it, but at home, when I'm spending time with this, I feel a deep, like a welling sense of intercession for our church. Because I think that what the devil would love to do is to get us to see each other as, as if we're part of an of a organization. As if uh, we in a biker club, and you know, you got people you meet up every with and you roll next to, and you match colors and you look alike and all of that, but then that's when it's over with, you go back to your life and you retreat to your own space. I think one of the most powerful things that the devil has done is gotten people in church to see it as not that important. And as a result, there's people who are hurting among us and we can't help them. It may be somebody here right now and they're going, well, Fonz, you don't understand. I've had trauma. I tried to do this the Bible's way. It went bad. I named the message Jesus, Others, and You. And, and, I, and I did that because there's a clear others, orient, orient, others orientation that we see in the scripture. Um, but I think the problem is we skip the J and we go straight to the O. We we're supposed to start with this loving relationship with Jesus. And then as he pours into our heart, we pour ourselves out in our relationship to others. But what we've seen is that we skip Jesus and we go straight to others. And what happens when you do that is you burn up. You hurt people. You say what you shouldn't have said. You do what you shouldn't have done. Yeah. And then the church has to get up and we have to now acknowledge that, yes, there were some people who were very gifted, who looked the part, who sounded the part. And guess what? No J or O. 
And they got up, and it was, it was just like Paul wrote. There were some people uh, who, who sought their own interests. Not like Timothy and Epaphroditus and Paul and Jesus mostly, right? There wasn't people. Paul literally says there are people who consider their own interests. In other words, they're doing things at the expense of others and not preferring others ahead of themselves. So we see what destroys a culture. What destroys a culture of a church? Being so starved and deprived of glory that you put you ahead of others and Jesus. And you can tell how you do it because if you put you ahead of others and Jesus, then the only resolve comes when you feel like you got it. If Jesus was who you put first, well then you would give your best and at most relief when Jesus is pleased and glorified. But when Jesus' glory isn't enough for you, it means you have now usurped that spot. <laughs> I gotta stop. This is the last thing. Do you know that the church... The church, like this is, this is I, I had a whole moment with this. The church isn't temporary. Everything in this room right here at some point won't be here. Everything you see, carpet, rug, building, structure, metal, all of this at one point won't exist. Who knows when? 10, 100,000 years, who knows? Do you know what will always exist? The church. Your work, your labor, your serving others in the church is, it might be the most eternal thing you do this week. It might, it's the only thing of eternal value. How many times are we content to serve each other in much more temporary ways and miss this eternal calling that we're called to, which is uh, your heart, your, your disposition ought to be Jesus, others, and you'll be good. <laughs> You'll be glorified. You'll be glad. You can rejoice just like Paul does. This is more than possible for those of us who would heed Paul's warning and live lives where we can prefer somebody else instead of ourselves. I'm done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Only way this happens is if you do it among us. Father, would you slay the part of us that fights this? Just like we're talking about being born to die. Well, well, we need to die in some ways. We haven't quite gotten there. Our love walk may not be as strong. And Father, we need you. We throw ourselves on your grace and your mercy. Would you teach us how to love each other? Teach us how to ask forgiveness. And teach us how to mend broken relationships. And, and how to invite others into deeper relationship and fellowship. Would you do what we cannot, Father, so that you get all of the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank God and amen. Thank you for listening to the Detroit Church Podcast. We'd love you to subscribe, like, and rate. And if you're not already, you can follow us on social media by searching for Detroit Church.